This episode of the Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast is brought to you by Maestro Classics, the creators of Stories in Music, a fun recorded series made for children and families to discover the thrill of classical music together. Featuring the London Philharmonic Orchestra, Maestro Classics brings over a dozen exciting stories to life with the help of a narrator and colorfully illustrated booklets. The Maestro Classics Stories in Music has won over 50 national awards and garnered praise from parents, grandparents, teachers, and children alike. All Maestro Classics CDs are available at the Met Opera Shop at Lincoln Center and online at metoperashop.org. To learn more, visit maestroclassics.com. If the French accused Massenet of being a Wagnerian, the Italians definitely pointed a finger at Puccini for the same thing. From Wagnerian-sized voices to a complex orchestral sound, Wagner's influence can be heard in Italian opera, but nowhere more than in the work of Puccini. On this episode of the Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast, we look at Italian opera in the wake of Wagner. The Metropolitan Opera Guild is dedicated to enriching people's lives through an awareness and deeper appreciation of opera. Our podcast features lectures and events presented by the Guild in support of performances at the Metropolitan Opera. The Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast is funded in part by support from the Stuart J. Pierce Memorial Fund. To learn more, visit metguild.org. Puccini's operas in the 2019-20 Met Opera season display traces of Wagner, Manon Lescaut, Tosca, and Madama Butterfly. For one thing, they all feature huge, sweeping voices with the power and agility to soar over a substantial orchestra. I'm Naomi Baratera, and on this episode of the Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast, Lecturer and musicologist Matthew Timmermans gives part three of his Wagner Across Borders talks, describing the many ways Wagner can be linked with these three Italian masterworks. Uh, Hello, everyone. I realized I just started teaching actually this week again, um, but I'm teaching a music appreciation class. And it was kind of interesting because I basically do this sort of what is music intro where I play some videos and I say, oh, do you think this is music? Do you not think this is music? Why I'm saying this is because here I keep playing these um, popular songs for you that I expect you to, to guess these leitmotifs, right? And we'll play it again today, I promise. And I realized during that class where I made some of the, the musical references I did that I was like, oh, they'll know this pop song that was like, you know, a decade ago. And I learned how old I was in comparison to them. It's basically <laughs> what I'm trying to get at. There are four lectures. There's one more to come, uh, which is next week on Slavic. And Slavic because we'll be looking at Czech and Russian opera. Of course, those of you who haven't been here yet, we've done German opera and we've done French. Um, so, so far, we've seen how Wagner was influenced by French grand opera. And we know this is one of the, uh, some of you may have seen the cards that we have over there. Those ones are all Wagner operas. But this one was of a very famous opera called La Muette de Portici, uh, which was by basically the creator of grand opera as we know it, uh, by... Uh, Daniel Aubert. And um, what we learned from this, basically, is that Wagner was influenced by the style of French Grand Opera, which was, of course, the spectacular sets, as you see here, with the uh, Vesuvius erupting very dramatically in the background. Um, We have our historic plots, which this one was uh, an uprising in Naples. Um, And then we also have the five acts and the ballet. 
Um, but then we learned that basically Wagner, after being sort of rejected by Parisian society, created his own sort of more Germanic kind of opera based on a tradition that already existed with Weber and Marschner. Um, and we see this with what we look at mostly in the operas thus far is looking at leitmotifs, um, which we will define later. I feel like I keep giving away that answer. Um, we also see that he uh, goes towards more mythic plots rather than historical plots, really trying to go back to this sort of German uh, lineage all the way back to um, these Nordic plots. Um, and then also this idea of more cohesive drama where we have less stop and start for arias and clapping and more looking at uh, the drama unfolding with the music until the end of the act and also where the music reflects the drama. And we see that with leitmotifs as we've discussed. Um, and so last week we saw with Massenet, and so here we have uh, Werther, and then another one of our trading cards. Um, this one we actually, uh, Alan and I, were discussing the fact that some of them have the opera house on the front of it. So this one has the opéra, which is, of course, the, the, the most, uh, what, what's the word I'm looking for here? Uh, the most spectacular of all the opera houses, has the most money, the most resources um, in Paris. But why we're talking about this is that we saw with Massenet how Wagner's influenced uh, by, or sorry, how Wagner, how the French society is now influenced by Wagner's style by including leitmotifs and again, more cohesive drama as we saw with Manon and Werther. So today we're gonna look at Italy um, and particularly Italian opera. Um, and this was another culture that was very anxious about the dominance of Wagner, this sort of German dominance that was happening in uh, the 19th century and being, and of course, wanting to keep their own national style. And how do you do that when this is becoming very popular in the opera world? So basically, we're going to look at how we saw with how the French kind of adapted to that, uh, that trend. And now we're going to see how the Italians did so, particularly by looking at Puccini. So like most places before hearing Wagner's music, the public did know of Wagner's ideas. And the ideas they knew of was this sort of, um, what they called was the music of the future, which it was based on this uh, 1850 essay, which was called The Artwork of the Future, where he espoused a lot of his ideas about using leitmotifs to represent the drama in order to unite poetry with the music. So the music is now representing the very words that are being discussed on stage. Um, also this idea of more cohesive drama. And then he also talks about the fact of linking opera with um, nationalistic plot lines, really to, again, sort of, I guess you could say being used as propaganda, but really to support this idea of a, a national um, identity. Uh, and so this all came out in these essays, but of course they were received very controversially by other cultures who felt like the Germans were basically, you know, bashing against them. And so they would always, like I said before, uh, they'd refer to Wagner's <coughs> ideas very pejoratively, saying, oh, it's the music of the future. Um, and so we'll kind of see What's interesting about this particularly is that none of them had heard the music. So they were kind of, they knew of these ideas and they were afraid of them. And so they said, oh, I hate Wagner, but they hadn't heard any Wagner yet. So what happened is in 1871, there was the Italian premiere of Lohengrin. And Lohengrin, so we did The Flying Dutchman, right? Which um, was, uh, that was in the 1840s. Um, and then two operas after that. So then there was Tannhäuser in 45. And then in, this one was... Uh, 1850 for Lohengrin. And what's interesting is that when it premiered in Italy, a lot of people listened to it and were like, oh, that wasn't as bad as I thought it would be. That was actually kind of nice. I kind of enjoyed that opera. Um, so then you had half of the Italians being like, oh, Wagner's not so bad. And then you had the other who were like, no, we can't have the Germans come into Italy. Um, 
And so it's interesting to think about this mostly because the music of the future or the artwork of the future ideas that we see here were actually really espousing ideals Wagner would really use in his later operas. Those ones being, of course, the Ring Cycle, which you saw, um, some of you may have saw last season, um, and then things like Tristan und Isolde and uh, Die Meistersinger. Um, but Lohengrin actually is still very much entrenched in these ideas of grand opera that we've discussed, that we saw uh, particularly in his Rienzi and in a little bit in the Dutchman, and also sort of the Italian opera influence, a lot of lyricism. There's still, um, I mean, there's still lyricism obviously in, in The Ring, but it's just a little bit different, okay? Um, so, again, what we're saying about this is that it wasn't as unpleasurable as the Italians had thought it would be. But some of the people who still were very against this happening was, of course, Giulio Ricordi, who was a very famous man, particularly because he published all of Verdi's scores and operas and made a lot of money off of Verdi, which is a wonderful thing because now we have it all published and he became very famous. Um, but of course, Ricordi also used his power to make sure that Wagner operas were not produced in Italy uh, because he did not want them coming in because he believed it threatened this idea of an Italian identity. Okay. But there were composers that were not as afraid, and they really liked Wagner. And so here are the people I wanted to talk about. So these composers that were very much for Wagner, uh, one of them was Alfredo Catalani uh, and his opera that he's mainly uh, famous for at this time. This, of course, right now we're at the end of the 19th century, right? This is the 1880s, particularly. Uh, so this is La Wally, which was um, Catalani's basically his claim to fame. And then we also have uh, Pietro Mascagni who uh, did uh, Cavalleria Rusticana. Many of you, I'm sure, have seen that here at the Met as well. Um, so Mascagni in particular was quoted actually saying that Wagner was the papa of all composers present and future. So they were very much um, in support of these ideas and wanted to incorporate them into their operas. And another person who was also a big supporter of Wagner was, of course, Giacomo Puccini, who we're going to discuss more about today. Now, just a little thing I want to note, Mascagni and Puccini were actually really good friends because they met when they were studying in Milan together. So they were good friends and both avid Wagnerians. In the late 1880s, Puccini at this point was becoming quite famous for being progressive um, as an Italian composer. And so he was actually invited then to go to the Bayreuth Festival in 1888. So the Bayreuth Festival, how many people know what the Bayreuth Festival is out of curiosity? Okay, lots of you, good. So the Bayreuth Festival was created, particularly it started with the building being created, which was in 1876. Um, and that, this was Wagner's dream during his time, well, during the 19th century when he was composing because he wanted his uh, opera house to perform all four of his operas over four days. And these four operas particularly were the ring cycle. So the idea is that you'd come in one day, see Das Rheingold, and then you'd see Die Valkyrie, Siegfried, and then Goethe Demmerung, see the whole story happen in these four days and be able to think about it. And also the idea of the Bayreuth Festival is that it's also um, in the middle of nowhere, basically. That was partially because he couldn't afford anywhere else. Um, but also by it being in the middle of nowhere, you couldn't be distracted by anything else while you were seeing the ring cycle. You just had to, when you came out of the opera, you had to stand there and think about it um, on the grass or perhaps wherever you were staying around the festival. Um, another thing that's interesting to note about uh, the Bayreuth Festival is that that theater is completely made out of wood. Now, there's a number of reasons why it's justified to be that way. Um, number one, we might think economically he didn't have the money to make it out of stone and a lot of lavish materials, and so wood was quite cheap and obviously very much around this area where it was in a forest. Um, but there was also once was the claim that the idea was he would perform the ring cycle 
And then once the ring cycle was done, just like at the end of Goethe Dämmerung, when of course Brunhilde burns down the world, he would then burn down the opera house. Um, that has not happened yet. This is a very recent photo. Um, but what I did want to note about the Bayreuth Festival is, as you can imagine, because it's Wagner's opera house, it really does have this sort of spiritual um, association with it, this sort of idea that it's the place you take a pilgrimage to Bayreuth to go and worship at the altar. Um, and so, especially at the end of the 19th century, it still had this idea that if you're going to go listen to Wagner, this is the place that you have to go to listen to Wagner. Um, another thing that made it very elite, of course, was the fact that you had to be invited. So it's very exciting for Puccini particularly to be invited to come and be among those chosen to go listen to Wagner's operas. So um, when he went, uh, he actually, in his first year, he saw Parsifal and Meistersinger. I thought you might just find this interesting. And then he was actually invited again back the next year, and he might have seen Tristan. We can't confirm that, but we assume he might have seen Tristan und Isolde. Um, but the importance of this is particularly the impact this would then have on Puccini's output, particularly his next opera that he was currently composing, which was Manon Lescaut. Um, so what's just a little caveat I want to add in here as well is despite knowing uh, Puccini's Wagnerian tendencies, it's interesting that uh, Ricordi was the one that commissioned all of Puccini's first three operas. So he really knew that this, was, this man was going to be very famous and wanted clearly to profit off him, which there's nothing wrong with. It's great. He made him a big success. Um, and so, of course, when, when thinking about Manon Lescaut, Puccini uh, wanted a new opera subject, and he chose Manon Lescaut. And does anyone remember when Massenet's opera of the same name was composed from last week, perhaps? It was very close, yes, actually quite a few years, not quite a few, but it was 1884. So when he's thinking about Manon, this is the end of the, the 80s, or the, the 1880s, sorry. So yes, it was only just a few years before. So of course, Ricordi was like, mm, maybe not a good idea, given the fact that there's already this very famous opera out there that will be compared, uh, compared with. But then Puccini's response to that was, a woman like Manon can have more than one lover, which is a very interesting comment. Um, but, and so, I guess he convinced uh, Ricordi, and he went along with continuing uh, to do this plot. Now, Menon, of course, is a great plot for a very romantic opera of the 19th century. It's got spectacular um, scenes that are going to happen, it's got a lot of drama, and it's, of course, got this very, this romanticization of the femme fatale. Um, that, again, like I said, works for romantic opera. Um, a femme fatale, for those of you who don't know, is this idea of a woman um, who is very alluring to the opposite sex and will ultimately destroy them, um, which is uh, a, a stereotype that runs throughout, particularly the end of the 19th century and then the early 20th century when really there's a lot of um, women's uh, activism happening and women asking for rights and, of course, the sort of, uh, like Carmen also, um, and uh, there's sort of pushback, obviously, to that, and we can see that in the opera as men are sort of becoming anxious about the growing power of women. Anyway, all of that to say that, yes, this was a great romantic plotline to do. However, in 1890, that was no longer in vogue because a very famous opera then came out by Mascagni, which was Cavalleria Rusticana. And so this opened the new age, which some of you may know this word, which is the age of Verismo opera. And so the, I, uh, the idea of Verismo opera is that it's inspired by the literature movement of the same name, which really starts to take the lens away from the rich in these, uh, in these plots and also from the fantasy and really wants to talk about real lives. And so it really emphasizes <laughs> this idea of naturalism, 
Um, so talking about the real people, contemporary people who are usually quite poor, perhaps. Um, and of course, opera does try to also do this, um, but we also do see in Verismo opera of, uh, that there's a lot of focus still on the sort of uh, romanticized, romanticized image of, the, um, uh, of the, the folk who live in villages. So things like if any of you have seen like La Sanambula by Bellini or Linda di Chamonix by Donizetti, this sort of romanticization of like the village people being happy and quaint. Um, and so this has existed in opera. And although opera tries to sort of take on this idea, of Verismo, it's still somewhat problematic because the operas end up still being a bit of this romanticized image of them. However, it did have an effect on the music. And so what we see is a retreat from, as you can see up here, a retreat from formalism. Formalism being um, this idea of having forms that have to exist within an opera that people come to expect. So we see a retreat from that, and we also see a retreat from our historical spectacle, which of course is very much grand opera, and then also grandeur which again is also grand opera. So basically, in other words, it's sort of an interesting um, move away from sort of Wagner and grand opera. Um, and then basically what it provides instead for us is this sort of raw emotion and simple unencumbered action. So things become a lot quicker, as some of you may have noticed. I mean, particularly in Rusticana, it's all in one act. So it very easily is able to do that, right? Things happen fast and it ends very quickly. Um, and then the raw emotion again is this idea of the sort of the vocal lines become a little more, um, they push on the voice more and they really want the singers to, I don't want to say scream, but they want them to push their voices to extents where the, you hear the sort of strain on their voice because it sounds exciting for that raw emotion you're hearing, right? As opposed to an earlier opera where you have um, things like uh, these beautiful coloratura arias where the, what you want to hear is the finesse and the sort of the polish of the voice. Here you more want the raw sound. In Manon Lascaux, we end up seeing a combination of these two things. Because um, what happens is he, Puccini doesn't go as far towards his Verismo predecessors, uh, Manon Lascaux coming out in uh, 1892. <laughs> but he does end up combining it with these sort of Wagnerian aesthetics that we see before, particularly the leitmotifs, the really lush, complex orchestra. Um, and, but then at the same time, there's a brevity to it, right? We all kind of make the joke about, oh, the Puccini last act just happened. It was only 15 minutes, right? And that's very much an effect of, um, of Verismo, where it was no longer important to have these long, drawn-out scenes. You really just wanted to get your impact across, hit the audience with emotion, and then get out of there, okay? So another thing to note, as I was saying about plots, though, before, is that obviously Manon Lescaut, for example, is not a veristic plot in the sense that it's, not, it's about these really spectacular scenes where Menal becomes very rich and we get to see all her fabulous dresses. Um, yes, she originally is very poor, but again, it's this sort of this romanticized plot rather than about, for example, in Rusticana, it's more about uh, this, this, a, a, a village in Sicily and sort of seeing how the village people live, right? Which is a little more closer to that, uh, the size of Verismo. Um, so, we're come to that part of the, the, uh, my lecture, or the show, shall we say, where we get to play Name That Leitmotif, your favorite part, right? Yes! Um, so, I didn't say before, because I was hoping I was going to ask someone, but can anyone remind me what a leitmotif is? I hear, I hear a lot of answers. Yes, I hear. It's a musical theme, basically, and it's a theme associated with maybe a character, an event, a situation, an emotion, any of these things. But the idea is, of course, that the music is now in part telling the story in a very literal way. So where I wanted to start, we're going to start with Manon Lescaut and sort of explore the leitmotifs in that. 
Um, and so as always, you've probably noticed that each time we talk about leitmotifs, the first leitmotif we always do happens to do with the main character, right? Because she has to have something, or she or he or whomever it is, has something associated with them and it usually occurs the moment that person walks in the room, right? So it's no different here. Uh, Puccini does this uh, same effect that has happened throughout much of opera. And so we'll hear it here. Um, this is Menal's motif and she'll sing it with her name. But we do hear it much like I, some of you might remember in Massenet's Menel, we did hear Menel's motif before she actually came on stage and sang it, saying to us, oh, this is my motif. And so we hear the same thing here with uh, Puccini as well. Um, so when Menel comes in, uh, for those of you who don't know the plot, what's happening is Menel is on her way to the, con uh, to the convent um, because she's very poor. Uh, and so she's basically stopping in this little town on the way there. Um, and basically she comes out, and this is of course where she's going to make des grieux. But what we see first is that she gets out of her carriage and the chorus, what you're going to hear is the chorus first sings the motif doing the da-da, da-da. And then you hear the orchestra start to repeat it. And then you just hear the orchestra keep repeating it underneath everybody, but only just that first part, the ba-da, it's just that interval. Right there. Right there. still hear it in the orchestra, right? So of course, all of that was heralding Menel's entrance. So you heard it, it was just the beginning part of the motif. Um, so now we're going to go back to where Menel then says her motif. And of course, this is when the reason she's saying her name is because Des Grieux has, of course, approached her saying, oh goodness, there's something that's really attracting me toward you. And he says, what is your name? And she says, Menon, let's go. Um, and so after that, he then has an aria, which basically he sings one of their love themes, which we'll talk about in a second. But then what happens in the orchestra is that her motif is sort of uh, swirling in the background and keeps going off, saying that he's in love, A, with Menon, let's go and B, that it's sort of taking over his mind. So what Puccini is really starting to do, which we have seen in Wagner and we have seen in Massenet, is that he's using the orchestra to show us the psychology of the characters and really add those layers. Of course, from what he's saying about how gentle and gorgeous is, we can kind of figure that out. But the point is, it's really adding that extra level to it. And there will be points we'll see later where the orchestra will tell us answers that the characters don't necessarily actually say. Anyway, but for now, we'll just hear the Manon motif again uh, in the orchestra as Desgrieux is sort of uh, thinking about her. Right there. Again. 
So as you heard there, it was in the orchestra first when we first entered, and then as he went on, he fully sang her motif, basically saying her name is Manon Lescaut, right? Um, so this then comes back, as we know from our looking at Massenet's Manon, that Manon does die at the end, um, and she dies in the Americas, of course, where she's been exiled. Um, and so then when we see when she's there, much like also happened actually in the Massenet, her leitmotif will again go off as she's, well, she's basically saying, recall the good times that we had together. Um, but what's interesting is how the, the leitmotif is now, sorry, it sounds very dissonant and very minor and very sad because the idea is rather than before when it was, you know, my name is Manon, we might have all this love together, how exciting. Now she's basically fading away and the music is showing how she's sort of um, expiring basically in front of us. So we'll see that here. It's right there in the orchestra. What I want to talk about now, particularly, are the love themes in this opera. Um, so first, when Degria, of course, meets and sees Menon, um, his love theme immediately goes off in his love for her. So we're just going to hear that right here. And then what you'll hear after, of course, is her response, which is telling him uh, her name. And so again, it's going to be in, actually in the orchestra first. Love theme again. So what you'll begin to notice is that unlike some of our other composers, particularly Massenet and early Wagner that we saw, what Puccini is particularly good at here is you'll start a motif in the orchestra and then you have the voice sort of pick it up as if it's passing between the two. And he'll do this a lot with the motifs we're going to see. And this is sort of this um, compromise between the sort of the Wagnerian literalism of showing the motifs in the orchestra or in their true form. Of course, Wagner does move away from that later in his works, but at the beginning, it's very much, here's the motif, you've heard it, you know what's going on. Um, but with Puccini, what we'll see is he's sort of also including that veristic aspect where he's trying to kind of show uh, or give that emotional push to you, right? Where you sort of hear this thing flowering in the orchestra and then all of a sudden it's picked up by the voice and it, it really 
I mean, it hits your insides very quickly. It's very effective. Um, and so we'll see that throughout several of the examples that we're going to look at, particularly um, also the next one we're going to look at, which, uh, so now Menon said her name, and he's introduced himself, and of course she leaves in a second, and then he has the aria that we saw before where we heard the Menon motif, and the aria is basically, uh, the majority of it is this love motif. So we're just going to listen to that before we start to hear it mixed later in the, uh, the rest of the opera. So here you'll first hear it, um, you'll actually hear it in the voice, um, and then the orchestra. So uh, what we're going to look at next now is another love theme that's associated with that one because it's going to become combined later in the, uh, in the opera. So I need you to keep that one in the back of your mind and we'll come back to it. Um, but now we're going to skip to the uh, Act 1 duet. And this is basically where, of course, Menal tells him she's going to the convent and she's leaving her, very, her life of gaiety behind that she had with her family. And of course, Des Grieux is like, no, you can't never love again. That would be terrible. So I'm going to whisk you off into this carriage that's conveniently behind us, and we're going to go to Paris. Um, so we're going to see that. And what's going to happen is that um, what you'll hear at first is Des Grieux suggests a new love motif. And then basically, um, Manon then is going to talk about how she misses the gaiety of her life that happened before. And it's sort of unclear whether or not she necessarily wants to go with Des Grieux except the orchestra tells us that she's already sort of smitten with him because it, in the orchestra it continues to play the uh, motif that Des Grieux just uh, alluded to, suggesting his love. So it suggests that, oh, maybe she feels some feelings for him. And then at the end, of course, they sing together and sing the motif together, which says, ah, we know where she's going next. She's going to Paris. Orchestra now is the motif.
how they sing it. And then after, I cut the clip here, but after they will sing it together as she's finally convinced to go off to Paris with him. Um, so now we're going to skip to act two. So Puccini very much um, uh, basically sh uh, he makes the, the action much faster in the true spirit of Verismo. So as we know, in the original Massenet Menon, it's over five acts. And so after act one, they escape to Paris together, and that is where... Um, basically, Desgrieux's father kidnaps Desgrieux because he doesn't want her to be, or Menon to be with him. And then, of course, Menon goes out, <laughs> off to Paris to then have a rich life among the, the man that basically wants to take care of her as a, a woman in luxury. Um, and what happens in the Puccini instead is that we basically hack out Act Two and just go straight to Act Three. So now, what we're about to see is that Menon is now in her life of luxury and she's already bored with it. Which, of course, that brings us to basically the middle of Act 3 in the Manon uh, by Massenet. And basically here she asks her brother to go and find Desgrieux to come and speak with her. Um, basically because she wants to ask for him um, to come and take her back. And so what we're uh, about to cut in on here is that duet where we'll see... Uh, and what Desgrieux at first puts up a fight saying, No, 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 uh, I don't want to get back with you. You uh, left me for riches. And then, of course, what we're going to come in and we're going to hear these very beautiful rising lines, which are sort of showing uh, Manon's uh, seduction of Desgrieux. And then after that, we're first going to hear that first motif of love that we heard that was in Desgrieux's aria. And then after that, a ways, we'll then hear that motif from their duet come back as it combines to create this new duet that they're reminiscing about their love that they had for one another, which, of course, musically is basically Manon convincing Desgrieux to then take her back which does happen. So these very seductive orchestral lines right now. brings back the motif in a second for from their his first aria. Right here. Or act one divine. Right. 
So once again, what we heard there is really what Puccini's doing, rather than, again, relying mostly on the complexity of Wagner, where you have all these motifs and they come together and really try to tell meaning in the orchestra, he's really trying to use them for effect here, right? He has, we've seen that there's very few motifs, light motifs that he uses throughout this opera, and then he really uses them to sort of have them in the orchestra and then pass them to the voice, and it's very immediate, um, the emotions you're A, supposed to feel. Um, but B, it's also very obvious for the audience a little more than Wagner, where it was a little more, you had to know some of the motifs in order to identify them. Um, so where, of course, these motifs come back is now, in what happens at the end of Act 2 is that Manon basically says, okay, I want to leave with you. I'm going to tell the man who's been paying for me while I live here all the time that I'm just piecing out. And then she says, oh, but wait, I have to grab some of my jewelry before I go. Um, and of course, she goes to do so, and then the police already get there, and oh, she's in prison. So in Act 3, at the beginning, she's now imprisoned because she's about to be put on a ship to be exiled with some other prostitutes to the Americas. Um, and so what happens at the beginning here is, of course, Des Grieux has followed her, and he, uh, well, Lesco is with him as well, Lesco being Manon's brother, and Lesco pays off the guard so that Des Grieux and Manon can speak before she uh, is put onto the boat. Um, and here what we'll see is that in the orchestra first, we're going to hear the... Um, the leitmotif from his first aria playing. And then, of course, um, as they're talking, they'll start to remember the good times. And then Menon's leitmotif will happen a few times in, um, in the orchestra. And I believe they also sing it as well. So we're just going to hear that here. This is the Act One leitmotif. combination of sort of Wagnerian ideas as well as Verismo, uh, Menon Lesco was received very favorably, but it did have some detractors. And unsurprisingly, the, uh, the Germanic, those who are expecting a Germanic exposition a la Wagner said, oh, well, it's just bad Wagner. There's just not enough leitmotifs. There's not enough complexity. Um, and it's uh, perhaps they might have also said it's far too lyrical, frankly. Um, and so that's where this picture comes in that you had on the front of your, um, your packet. 
So um, this lovely little meme here is basically suggesting that Wagner had this large pool of leitmotifs that he pulled from, and then Puccini came over to this little bucket and put his, uh, his rod in and into this little bucket of leitmotifs, and that's where Puccini got them. Um, of course, this is for the naysayers, but I'd like to think of Puccini more like how we thought of Massenet, where what he's doing is he's combining these two cultures to make something different and to make a middle ground. So, and the middle ground here, of course, is very much Puccini wanted things to move very quickly in this sort of spirit of verismo, right? But then at the same time, he was an avid Wagnerian, so he tried to keep some of these aspects as well by using leitmotifs. So we sort of have this in-between, and I think to appreciate Puccini, as probably most of the world clearly already does, but the point being, to appreciate it, you kind of have to think it that way, uh, of it that way in this sort of in-between. Um, and so these criticisms would actually uh, recur throughout most of Puccini's career, um, particularly with Tosca, where, there, again, there's a wealth of leitmotifs that happen there, um, and then also in Butterfly. Before going on to Butterfly, which I will talk more about, I do want to talk about the Manon Lescaut voice. So in addition to also, we're bringing this idea of verismo together with these Wagnerian, you know, long, drawn-out concepts, right? So how does this affect the voice, Right. We have a typical idea of sort of the verismo voice is not necessarily a huge voice. It still wants the lyricism um, necessary for Italian melody. But at the same time, Puccini's creating these large orchestras to create these effects with, right? So at the same time, you want this Wagnerian-sized voice to really um, sail over the orchestra, right? And also, it does create quite an effect in having um, this large voice that you can really hits, your, hits you in the gut, right? So this is sort of the tension that's constantly negotiated with a lot of Puccini roles, particularly with the soprano roles. Do you have a large, a really large soprano voice sing the role? Or do you want more of this sort of delicate, vulnerable sound for these very beautiful lines that have to be sung? Um, so I thought we would sort of explore some of the interpreters of Manon Lescaut to see what that really means. Now, this person I put up in front of you first, this is Lucrezia Bori, who was uh, a very famous singer at the Metropolitan Opera, uh, particularly in the early 20th century. We're talking 1910s, 1920s, and into the 30s. Um, and she was a lyric soprano, um, and she had actually, from what you'll hear in the recording, a lighter voice. And so it's kind of interesting to see that um, this lighter aesthetic was very much appreciated when the, when the opera was first premiered. However, there's a caveat to this, which is that actually a lot of these lighter sopranos were singing a wide range of roles at that time. They weren't specializing as much as we see today. And so people, look, Crezia Bori did it, but a lot of singers who did sing Puccini would also sing Wagner. But when you listen to the recordings, they did have a kind of lighter sound. Anyway, keep that in your minds. It will come back later when we talk about other singers. So with Lucrezia, we're just going to listen to her sing um, the act, the very famous act to Aria, um, where basically Menon is talking about all the wonderful things she now has um, in her possession at the beginning of Act Two. And I just want you to listen to sort of the quality of the voice, um, and then we'll compare it with some other singers.
So what you can hear from that is we have sort of this lighter lyric timbre to it. Um, one thing I did neglect to mention is that she was a very famous Manon Lascaux at the Met, and she sang it for several decades. And what's interesting, though, is as we talked about last week with uh, Massenet's Manon, right, another role that sort of is negotiating this need for power, but at the same time, this sort of light coloratura aspect to it to be showy. She was also a very famous Manon in Massenet's opera, which is kind of interesting because today you may see some singers sing both those roles, but it actually doesn't happen that often. It's kind of like you specialize in one or the other. So it's kind of interesting to see how these traditions have sort of separated over time, depending on the singer. So the next singer I want to show you is uh, Montserrat Caballé, who is a very famous Manon Lascaux in her time. Um, and now I've sort of cheated a little bit because I've, I've taken us to the more dramatic aria in Act, uh, in act Four. Um, but I couldn't get it. There's no early recordings of people doing that aria, so I had to cheat and go back to Act 2. Anyway, so in Act 4, basically what happens is Menon is, of course, now dying in the desert, and basically uh, Grieu has gone off to find her some water or to look for help, and then she basically is like, oh my god, I've been abandoned, I'm going to die alone out here. And then this very dramatic aria happens. Yes, it does sound cheesy, but honestly, it's perhaps the best aria in the entire opera, so it's a really wonderful moment. Anyway, here we have Montserrat Caballé singing it, um, and she's particularly notable because, uh, well, so she was famous particularly in the 1960s and into the 70s and into the 80s. She sang for a very long time. Um, and she was a very versatile soprano in the sense that she sang some heavy Wagner in her career near the end. Um, also a lot of Strauss, things like Salome. Um, but at the same time, she sort of had this lightness to her voice. She was very famous for her high pianissimos and her ability to create a very beautiful lyric line. So naturally, she was very famous for singing Puccini because you can combine both of these effects. So what I want you just to hear here is just sort of hear the voice and compare it with Lucrezia Borges that was a little bit lighter. And just also think about what that brings to the role, really, right? Like the lighter voice might bring to it a sort of an innocence or the ingenue-like quality or a feminine quality, perhaps. Well, Caballé's interpretation may perhaps bring more of a, a, a dramatic quality to it, um, and it really, maybe that more that veristic quality perhaps as well. Um, but it's still very feminine. Anyway, I'll let you listen and decide. of hear that, right? There's definitely a very difference in exactly in the quality. So now what starts to happen, I mean, particularly in the 60s, there was another singer becoming very famous who has already been mentioned. Does anyone know what the name was? So over here, okay. It was Morella Freni, was becoming very famous in the 1960s. And she became a particular conductor by the name of Herbert von Karajan, um, really, really liked her voice, A, and wanted to basically take her into all of his recordings. Now, Karajan was very interested in sort of going back to this earlier aesthetic of lighter voices in these larger roles. And so uh, Murella Freni was very much that singer for him. So 
Um, she started to do these larger roles, not Puccini's Men on Let's Go yet. But then in 1984, she did take on this role. And it's one of the, what's interesting is that many of these roles, these larger roles that she did sing, um, she didn't sing all of them on stage. Um, so she did Tosca, for example, which I don't believe she ever sang on stage. She sang arias. But Manon, she did. Um, but she sang it with uh, Sinopoli and not Carian. But what's interesting to hear here is this sort of um, trying to go back to this perhaps more feminine sound, more delicate, more vulnerable, the ways to think about this. Um, what I neglected to mention, actually, was that it was very controversial when Morella Freni did this. Many people were like, oh, but she's this beautiful lyric. She was the perfect Michaela and Carmen, and now you've made her sing all these large vo- roles and you're going to destroy her voice. Um, while there was other people, of course, who were big fans of Kayan who absolutely loved what he did. I am one of those people. Um, but anyway, I, I would love you to hear her interpretation of that same part and to just hear the sort of the difference between that and Caballé. So what's interesting about that is you may notice that it sounds like there's a lot more um, tension in the voice. There's a lot more. It sounds like she's really, not that she's struggling, but she's very much more feeling those veristic emotions to try and accomplish singing this, as opposed to Caballé, who's kind of like, I am soaring through this with my gigantic voice, right? So it does bring a very interesting aesthetic that perhaps maybe Puccini originally intended, knowing that voices were lighter, that was gonna, that were going to be performing his roles. So it's kind of interesting to think about that, and maybe also how our tastes have changed. Some of us really do like having that large voice that just, you know, cascades over the orchestra. Um, so now I just want to move on to and talk about Madama Butterfly. And why it's interesting, just moving back to leitmotifs particularly, is that I think Puccini uses them in a, a lot more creative ways than he did in Manon Lescaut, um, in the sense that he sort of tries to talk about character, um, but will show particularly character psychology. So I just want to take you through a few of those and kind of explain what's going on. Um, so the first one we're going to hear is Butterfly's entrance. As always, we always start with, of course, the main character's leitmotif. Uh, So you'll hear it first in the orchestra, and then she'll eventually sing it. It's right there. Again in the orchestra. Again in the orchestra. 
Okay, so then we see this leitmotif now come back. So what happens, so what's, for those of you who don't know, what's happening in this opera is um, Pinkerton, whom you saw, played by Placido Domingo, has come and um, basically taken this, uh, this geisha, a bride, and paid for a lease on this house. Um, and now he's, he's, after he meets her, he decides to marry her, and so they have the marriage ceremony. And then after that, they have a love duet in which, of course, they then consummate their marriage. Um, so now we're at that point where she is now put on her um, marriage gown and he is basically coaxing her into the bedroom, shall we say. Um, and so what happens here is that now Butterfly's leitmotif will mainly be sung by Pinkerton, which is kind of interesting, as I'll mention as we go on. Um, but what you're going to first hear is you're going to hear it in the orchestra, and then as usual with the weaving, we'll hear the voice take up Butterfly's leitmotif, and it's sung by Pinkerton here. So we heard it there, da, 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 da. right? That's Butterfly's motif. So what sort of I find sort of interesting about this, the idea that Butterfly never really sings her own light motif again throughout the opera is kind of, to me here, it's like um, Pinkerton has come and bought this house and in a way bought this geisha, and now he's sort of owning her. And what we see musically happening is that the light motif is now being owned in a way by Pinkerton as well. So it's kind of, the light motifs are sort of showing us the power dynamic that's perhaps going on in this moment. Um, so I just want to show another clip where, um, again, really obviously Pinkerton will sing that leitmotif to, and this is, of course, he finally fully sings the leitmotif, and this is just before they um, kiss and do what they're going to do. Here's the leitmotif. So now the leitmotifs I want to move on to are particularly the leitmotifs associated with butterfly. So the next one we're going to look at is a butterfly's leitmotif of wonder. So this happens again in the duet. Um, when he's just before the duet proper happens, where it's the voliata mi bene, which is everyone's right. Voliata mi bene, da, 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 così. It's all our favorite excerpt, let's be honest. Um, so just before that happens, in the orchestra we hear is we're going to hear this bum, 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 bum motif is about to happen. And so that's associated with Butterfly's wonderment toward Pinkerton, right? She's very much in this, this romance with him and she's fascinated by him. So we're just going to hear that. Now the duet begins. Um, everyone got there was the bum, 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 bum. Very short. Very, you would almost not notice it were you originally listening. So this comes back at a very interesting moment. So now we're in act two. Pinkerton is left for several years. Butterfly is hoping he will come back at some point. And of course, Suzuki, who is her um, handmaiden, is skeptical of this fact happening. And so then... Um, Butterfly is basically prompted to then sing her very famous aria, which is Un Bel Di, One Beautiful Day. He'll come back over the hillside and he'll come and find me, right? And so at the end, basically what happens, she reaches up to this climactic high A 
and it's a very exciting moment. Um, and what she sings there, she sings, I promise that this is going to happen, and then we hear that wonderment motif come back. So it sort of now gets changed into this idea of a promise being associated with the wonder that she has for Pinkerton, right? Um, so we're going to hear her sing it, okay? And it's going to, I'll, I'll point it out when it happens. It'll be quite obvious, I think. Right here. Happens again. So when this motif now comes back, is at the very end of the opera. And so for those of you who don't know, what happens is Pinkerton comes back, and uh, after their, um, their moment, uh, their love moment, uh, Butterfly became pregnant, and she had a child. And so now Pinkerton's coming back to take the child with his new um, American wife. Um, and what happens, of course, at that moment is um, Butterfly agrees to give the child, and then she's going to take her own life because she's been dishonored. Um, and so what happens here is as he comes to finally see her, she then um, basically in this production at least threatens to take her own life and he sees that's about to happen and what rings out in the orchestra but the sort of the wonderment motif in a very sort of sinister manner kind of suggesting the disillusionment that she had with the wonder um, of Pinkerton basically. Um, so we'll just hear that happen here. It will ring out immediately in the orchestra. Right here. Again. So again, we can see how in the orchestra it's sort of showing us how these motifs are changing depending on the psychology of the characters, right? Which is very interesting, I think. Um, I do want to move on to um, one of what I think are one of the more interesting motifs in the opera, which is this is the motif of Butterfly's disownment by her family. So what happens is during the wedding, um, this is back in Act 1 now, they've met, they've agreed to marry, um, and during the wedding, her uncle, who's a priest, basically um, condemns her because in getting married, she's agreed to take on a new religion, which is Christianity. Um, and so... Uh, in doing so, this motif will play in the orchestra. It sort of develops for a bit, we'll hear, and then we'll hear it ring out in the orchestra where it's associated with her family's disownment of her uh, for switching um, religions, basically. Here's the motif. It's in the orchestra again. Again. It's in the orchestra still. 
So you heard that in the rest of the bum ba bum ba bum ba dum dun da dun dun dum ba dum. We all got that. Okay. So this comes back. Of course, she's now been disowned because she agrees to go through with the marriage. Um, and then we go back to our love duet. And so what's happening now in this particular scene we're going to look at is she's changing into her marriage garments. Um, and so, of course, they're singing their love duet. These beautiful melodies are happening. And then suddenly that motif comes back as she starts to, she thinks uh, out loud uh, about the fact that she's been disowned by her family. Um, and so what's interesting at this part is it's very quiet. Just you'll notice how it's sort of, it seems like it's almost in the back of her mind. Orchestra. So we heard it in the orchestra, it was very quiet. There was a bum, ba dum, ba dum, ba dum. So what's interesting is then during the love duet, they, they're singing and she's very clearly falling in love with him. And then all of a sudden it rings out very loudly. Um, but as we'll see from the image, she doesn't seem disconcerted as she was before when it was quiet. So it almost seems like an omen. And then you'll now read, here you might want to read the text because what happens is that He's, talk, she, he's talking about her name being Butterfly. And then she says, oh, in America, what they do is they pin them down. And then he says, oh, so that we can keep you and, and hold on to you, right? And so then it kind of enters this sort of meta-narrative of sort of, A, perhaps men holding on to women and what's going on there. And so what I'm trying to say is that the leitmotif is sort of sing signaling to us that this, that's sort of the omen that the family was perhaps talking about with disownment. So it can be talked about in, a, in a, a lens of gender, the idea of holding on to your women. But it could also be this idea of the way the West holds on to images of the East. And so particularly, of course, this opera is known as one of the Oriental operas in the sense that it was very much a Western gaze of what people thought of Japan people being Puccini, um, being put in the opera. And so it's interesting, although I'm not trying to say that I think Puccini did this intentionally necessarily, it's interesting to think about it in, the, in this idea now that the motif is sort of, when it's coming on at the moment that he's saying, I'm going to possess you, butterfly, this idea that it's saying how the West has possessed the East through a lens of um, sort of the stereotypes we have of them. Does that, does that make sense to everyone? I know I sort of unlaid a lot of ideas there. Okay, well, let's... Listen to the scene, and you'll hear it come out very loudly in the duet. Here's the motif. 
perché non fugga più io t'ho gremita ti serro palpitante sei mia So then the end of the duet happens. But you hear there how they're talking about this idea of pinning down the butterfly, but also this difference between the cultures. And then that particular moment, this sort of idea of when the, um, her family is being apprehensive about her going to this other culture, is then underlined with that motif is rather interesting. Now, of course, this motif then comes back at the very end. So this is the moment when she opens this chest and she takes out the sword that she is then going to uh, take her own life with um, to basically reclaim her honor. Um, and so here, of course, when she opens the box, we hear the disownment motif, sort of like um, a premonition of, or well, foreshadowing before what's about to happen later, the idea that she's doing this because of what has happened, um, that she was, um, it wasn't the wrong decision to move to Christianity, basically. That was lecturer Matthew Timmermans on how Wagner's influence crossed borders into Italian opera. To find out more about programming at the Metropolitan Opera Guild, visit our website at metguild.org and be sure to follow the Metropolitan Opera Guild and Opera News on your favorite social media platform. I'm your host, Naomi Baratera, and thank you for listening.